this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Have any of you here ever been faced with an impossible task? Something that uh, maybe it was asked of you to do and there was simply no way for it to happen? Um, I don't know about this, but I experience this often when I'm working on vehicles. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have ever encountered this, but there's something that's supposed to fix something and there's just no way for it to work. Uh, I encountered this a, a while back when I was putting a new bumper on my Jeep that I don't have anymore, that I dearly miss. But when I was putting this bumper on, the the holes that were to line up with, I wasn't putting a new bumper on, I'm sorry. I was putting a new winch in my old bumper that I was replacing because the winch worn out and they warrantied it. And I went to go uh, take the winch out and put the new winch in and I was supposed to be able to I was supposed to be able to do it without removing the whole bumper from the frame. And so as I'm examining up under there, trying to figure things out, trying to kind of like come up with a solution on how I was going to accomplish this, I realized what they had instructed me to do was impossible. <laughs> um, you know, I wound up having to drill a hole through the frame in order to get to a particular bolt to loosen it off, to take it off. Um, but to do it the way that it was supposed to be done was an impossibility unless I had like arms like Gumby and I could like bend around the frame of the, the vehicle. It was one of those things that was extremely infuriating and frustrating because there was just simply no way for it to happen. But maybe you've been asked to do something in work or in school and uh, they wanted you to accomplish something maybe in a certain time frame that was just a literal impossibility. I, I think I face this often. I'll have somebody that will come to me and say, you know, I need you to build a website and take photos of this house and get all of this done by last Wednesday because we dropped the ball. And I have to respond saying, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and if it is, it's going to cost you a lot more than what you think it is. Um, one of those things where we're faced with these impossible tasks. I want you to understand this truth, though, and I need you to kind of come to terms with it, that the Lord will never ask something from you that's impossible. You say, whoa, hold up. I I think he might, actually. He asks us to do things that we can't possibly do. And to, to clarify that statement, the Lord will never ask you to do something that he's not fully prepared and equipped to give you the ability to do. Anything that the Lord ever asks us to do, he backs it up by his word and by his spirit to fully equip us to accomplish it. How many of you guys believe that? Right? Jesus will not ask you to do something he's not fully willing to help you succeed in. And I think sometimes we get intimidated by the things the Lord asks us to do, right? Because we're like, there's no way I can do that. And you're right, you can't do it. Everybody say, I can't do it. (laughs) But you can with him. And that's the beautiful promise that we see in Scripture is that the Lord will often ask us to do impossible things, but he always promises to partner with us to see it to fruition. 
You see, there's this striking command in Scripture that I think catches us off guard a little bit. And it comes straight from Jesus' mouth. It's found actually all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. Not only does Jesus say it, but it was uh, laid forth back in the law. It's reiterated by the apostles. But it's one that I think we don't take too seriously as the bride of Christ. I think we read it and we kind of say, you know what, Jesus might just be using a little bit of hyperbole there. He doesn't actually mean what he's saying. It's got to mean something else because that's just, that's just too hard. That's impossible, Jesus. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I think it's interesting because every other time Jesus says something, we take it pretty seriously, right? You know, I don't read the words of Jesus as kind of a guy that was sarcastic <laughs> or one that was kind of saying something but didn't really mean what he said. I don't encounter that in the words of Jesus. And what I'm referring to is actually found right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus says this. He says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, this is reiterated throughout Scripture all the way back in the Levitical law. Back in Leviticus, we see this command <laughs> to regard the Lord as holy, and we in turn are supposed to be separated, and we're supposed to be holy. We see it throughout the Old Testament narrative. Jesus himself reiterates it in other, uh, other places in the Gospels where he says, Be holy as I am holy. The Apostle Peter references it again. Paul references it again. We're going to look at some of those. But there's this command for us to be holy, for us to be perfect, just like God is perfect. Right? I, you guys have read this before, right? This is, comes as a shock to you. Yet we inevitably fall short of this again and again and again. So the question I ask you, just because we haven't lived up to it, doesn't mean it's still not important, right? I realize I might have butchered the way I said that. But just because no one has ever actually been perfect just as Jesus is perfect, or just as the Father is perfect, or just because nobody has kind of excelled to this level of perfection, that doesn't nullify and somehow make this command not a big deal, does it? I want to read this to you. Um, this was written by Albert Barnes in his commentary. He says, The fact that no one has been perfect does not relax the claim. The fact that no one will be in this life does not weaken the obligation. It proves only the deep and dreadful depravity of the human heart and should humble us under the stubbornness of guilt. I want to talk to you this morning about being holy. I want to talk this morning about what it means to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. We're going to kind of continue jumping back into some previous teaching um, where we were talking about the fear of the Lord pretty uh, exclusively for the last number of weeks. I'm kind of viewing this teaching as the culmination of where we've been in teaching on the fear of the Lord and the priority of the fear of the Lord. Because I believe this, the Lord wants to establish consistency within his bride um, because he wants to grow this church. I so 
uh, deeply was feeling this from the Lord in prayer. So I was asking God, what is next? As I was dreaming about vision to cast before you guys on where we're going as a church, the Lord spoke to me that he's establishing consistency and holiness in his church because I, I need you to understand this. If we're not healthy and we grow, we're doing nothing for the people of this community. We're doing nothing for this city. But if the Lord can establish and root us in a place of holiness and consistency, that was the word that the Lord kept stirring up in my spirit. As people come, as we grow, as we, as we encounter the Holy Spirit and they get connected to a healthy, thriving body, that is going to bring transformation to this community. That is going to bring life to this community. I mean, just picture it like this. If we, were, if we were just kind of mediocre and people started getting saved and coming and plugging in with our church, the only thing that we could expect is mediocre fruit, is mediocre results. But as the Lord establishes us in holiness, as he establishes us in the fear of the Lord and we're, and we're, living, uh, we're living consistently before his eyes, as people get connected to what God's doing here, it's going to produce life-changing results. And that's the heartbeat of the Father, I believe, in this season. Anyway, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I came across this passage of Scripture really wrestling with this idea because I don't know about you, I make some big mistakes. How about you guys? <laughs> I actually came across these words of Jesus after not looking like Jesus at all. <laughs> you know, I... I want to be honest with you guys. I struggle still. I still have a temper. I can still be cruel and hurtful. I can be, I can be just a bad person. <laughs> and as I grow closer to the Lord, I realize how far and how much I actually need Him. But in that, I want to talk about this command of Scripture to be perfect as our Father is perfect, to be holy as our Father is holy. I want to read this because this, this so helped uh, connect me with what we're talking about here today. And again, Albert Barnes says this, the unceasing and steady aim of every Christian should be perfection. Perfection in all things, in the love of God, of Christ, of man, Perfection of heart and feeling and emotion. Perfection in his words and plans and dealings with people. Perfection in his prayers and in his submission to the will of God. No man can be a Christian who does not sincerely desire it and who does not constantly aim at it. No man is a friend of God who can acquiesce in a state of sin and who is satisfied and contended that he is not as holy as God is holy. And any man who has no desire to be perfect as God is and who does not make it his daily and constant aim to be as perfect as God may set it down as demonstrably certain that he has no true religion. How can a man be a Christian who is willing to acquiesce in a state of sin and who does not desire to be just like his master and Lord? Well, I, I realize that's heavy. And I realize you, you might say, you know what, just because I'm not perfect or I don't want to be perfect, you're, you're going to say that I'm not a Christian? I realize that's kind of a weighty statement, but the call of a Christian is to be like Jesus, right? That's actually what the terminology Christian was derivated from, right? To, to be Christ-like <laughs> or be a little Christ. Friends, what... 
What Albert is saying here is not that you have to be perfect in order to be a Christian. We understand that we don't encounter that. If you've met a perfect Christian, um, you're, you, you haven't. <laughs> but there needs to be a desire that's evident in the life of every person that says, you know what, I want to live like Christ. That I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be perfect. I want to be able to stand before the Lord and be holy like he is holy. It's a call. It's a command. It's one that I don't believe we can just kind of write off because you might say it's impossible. Or it's not, it's not feasible. It's not going to happen, so it's not a big deal. I believe that perfection is something that Jesus calls us to, I believe he is fully prepared to equip us to walk it out. So I want to make this claim, and I believe that a perfect Christian is possible. I've not seen it. I've not experienced it. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for it. Does that make sense? I want, I want to read to you out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this is another place where this same kind of concept is reiterated in 1 Peter. So the Apostle Peter tells us here that we're to, in verses 13 through 15, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not, con- not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all, everybody say all, your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. You see, at first we might say we're supposed to be holy as God is holy, and we're supposed to be perfect as he is perfect, and that just means that everything we've done is under the blood of Jesus, right? And he's made us right. We understand that by his blood, by his death and resurrection, we have inherited uh, his life. That we are made righteous in the sight of God. That we have been made holy before him. But this is not these verses of scripture where we're talking about be perfect like he is perfect. Be holy like he is holy. Is not talking about the state of our souls before Christ, like some would want to kind of just write it off and make that easy, because that's easy to deal with, right? You know what? I'm still broken. I'm just human, but I'm saved, right? Saved by grace, <laughs> and it's good, and I'm, I'm going to heaven, and so I'm holy. That's not what Scripture is talking about here. In fact, even in First Peter, we see it's talking about our conduct, The things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we experience have to be holy because God is holy. I strongly believe this out of, not just as a place of where we stand before God uh, on a salvation level, that in turn we also must manifest the fruit of a changed life by being holy before the Lord in our conduct. And that's something that I believe Uh, Scripture is very, very, very clear about. But just looking at these few verses of Scripture very quickly, we get this command to gird up the loins of your mind. 
what the heck does that mean, right? That's some confusing language. Whenever in the Old Testament you would see this imagery of girding up your loins, it was you had this outer cloth and some like underwear kind of stuff, and you would tie your tunic up, and it was it was kind of weird. But if you couldn't run in the clothes that you typically wore, so you had to tie it up, and it meant that you were getting ready for action. You were going to do something active. And so essentially what Peter is saying here when he's saying gird up the loins of your minds, he says, get your mind ready for action. Get your head in the game because holiness does not come by way of accident. It requires intentionality. You've got to get your head in the game. You have to be prepared because I believe holiness begins in the mind. It begins about what you think about. It begins about what your mind is set to. That's why scripture tells us that we need to renew our mind, right? Because actions begin as thoughts, don't they? And so if we're talking about the conduct, we're talking about living holy, I believe there has to be a renewing of the mind. And we have to be, we have to get our mind in the game. Be sober and rest your hope. Be sober. (laughs) Put down the bottle. Be sober. There's a lot more to it than that, but... uh, I hate alcohol, friends. I hate it. I want you to know that. I've seen it ruin so many stinking lives. I've seen it rob so many different people of the promises of God for their lives. And I'm not going to preach that if you have a glass of wine that you're going to hell or something like that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that uh, I've encountered so much damage and destruction because of a casual approach to alcohol that I have a hard time... Uh, seeing how the Lord can receive glory out of it in any capacity. I wish more people would just hate it, not make excuses for it. Be sober. That's not in my notes, but just do it. The second thing I want to take note out of this passage of Scripture here is that our hope is rested fully in God's grace, not in your own effort. Everybody say, yay, okay, great. He said something I can get behind, right? Because <laughs> I realize the tone of this can be a little, little scary, a little intimidating at first. But I believe we have an inferior understanding of the grace of God. And so therefore we separate our actions from God's grace as they're some kind of opposed to each other, right? Right? Because right, you would quote Paul. We'd quote uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, 8 and 9, for uh, it's by grace which we've been saved through faith, not in our works that any man could boast, right? We understand that our works didn't earn us salvation. The grace of God gave us salvation. And we use this scripture, and I've heard it, I've encountered it so many times, where it's used as a, as a way to justify a godless life. It's used as a way to justify a lack of holiness. They say, Pastor Nate, don't be legalistic. It's not about what you do. I'm saved by grace through faith alone. Well, that's true. I think we don't understand what grace actually is. And I want you to understand that grace and our works are not segregated from each other. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but I want you to understand, yes, our hope rests fully in God's grace. We are saved through God's grace alone through faith. 
Our salvation has been bought by him. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that you tried really hard and you made it happen because you were a good person. 100%, I'm I'm not saying that. But I do believe because we don't understand what the grace of God actually is, that somehow we've come to this place where we treat the grace of God and the works of man as something that are opposed to one another and they actually work in harmony with one another. You need to understand this, that God's grace simply, and I'll leave it at this until we talk about it again in a moment, God's grace is supernatural empowerment for you to live holy. We'll talk about it here in a moment. And the last thing I want to bring out of this brief passage of Scripture in 1 Peter is that holiness is defined by a changed lifestyle. He says here, but as he who called you... or beginning in verse 4, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. What he's saying here is you can't live like you used to live if you're going to consider yourself a Christian. I realize this may seem elementary. This may seem like something that we understand and we might know. But the sad reality of the fact is that if we examine the average Christian, and I use that terminology lightly, of one that maybe professes Christianity uh, in America today with uh, anybody that maybe doesn't, oftentimes we can't see the difference between one that is serving Jesus and one that isn't. And I use the terminology there, serving Jesus lightly. That's a sad reality when the church and the world look nothing, uh, where they look exactly the same. Friends, as a believer and as a follower of Jesus, your life should look so radically different than the rest of the world. The things that drive you, the, the motivation even behind why you get up and go to work, to your conduct, to your speech, to the way that you carry yourself, your list of priorities. They have to be different. We read about what a kingdom life looks like in this book, and it looks nothing like what the American dream looks like. And we wonder. We wonder why people aren't like knocking on our door just saying, you know what, I want to give my life to Jesus. Because whatever they've got, I want. You know, there was a day and age when that was reality. But, and I'm saying this not as, not as a blanket statement just for this church. I'm saying it kind of uh, with Christianity in general within our culture. Friends, I, I want something different than what they have. I want my life to look different. I want my life to, I want to be holier than thou. And we, we kind of have this thing of feigned humility where that's, that's not okay. You don't want to be a holy roller You don't want to be righteous. You want to blend in. You want to be accessible to people that are broken. And that's not not the call that we have in Scripture. That's not the command that God gives us to live holy. Be holy like He is holy. To come out as separate from amongst the people. There is something that has to be evident in our life that is completely and radically different than the rest of the world.
And this was the exact um, problem and situation that Paul was addressing in his letters to the church in Corinth. In our deeper projects, we've been reading through 2 Corinthians right now. And uh, we've been kind of uh, going through some of the things that Paul was addressing with this church that he planted. And one of the big things, one of the glaring issues that existed in the church in Corinth was that they were living just like everybody else around them. This, This wasn't new. This isn't a new problem just to the church in Corinth. It's a problem that has plagued mankind all the way back through the Old Testament, right? We see the people of Israel, God's chosen people, his command to them was to live separate from the nations around them. That they wouldn't adopt their ways and they wouldn't adopt worshiping their gods because they would become a snare to them and they would wind up in idolatry. And they'd forget who the Lord their God was. It's the same theme that carries over where we have culture, where we have a society that says, we, you need to fit in. <laughs> you need to be like everybody else. <laughs> and that's not God's plan and that's not God's intention for our lives. And so, real quickly, the three things that I took out of First Peter here was that we have to get our head in the game. We have to be intentional about holiness, because it's not going to happen by accident, but our hope is fully rested in God's grace. That's where our confidence is placed, is that it's not in us trying to be holy. I want you to understand that. It's not just you really doing, trying really hard to be good. That doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility in it, but it's completely rested. It's completely founded in the grace of God, which we'll talk about here in a second. But that holiness is marked. It's demonstrated by lifestyle change. There, there has to be something different about God's people who are deemed holy than rather than just the, um, the notion that we're saved by grace. Holiness carries a mark of a changed life. Why don't we look at those letters that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians? Uh, We've been there as our deeper project. We've been reading them. I believe almost all of our deeper projects have gotten to this point in uh, reading um, 2 Corinthians. But we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 is where we'll start. We'll just begin in verse 1. It says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul is writing to this church that he's planted, talking about how they have a partnership of working together with the Lord, and he pleads with the church at Corinth not to receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? I think for us to understand what's actually taking place here, we need to have a clear, healthy, working definition of what the grace of God actually is. I mentioned it earlier that it is the empowerment to live a holy life. That is the easiest definition I believe that I can kind of give on what grace is. But in our society, I think we kind of mix up some definitions in our Christianese vocabulary, right? We talk about things like mercy and grace, and we don't really understand what they mean. The most helpful thing that I ever received in kind of coming to uh, a healthy definition of these terms 
was in ministry school, and it goes something like this. It's that uh, mercy is not receiving something we do deserve, whereas grace is receiving a gift that we don't deserve. They're both two extremely good things that come from God, but they have different applications. Right? Within, with mercy, you know, a while back, Kelly and I had the privilege of going on vacation uh, to Hawaii, and I was, uh, I was competing in a Catan tournament. It's a board game. Um, but I got pulled over while we were in Honolulu. And uh, there's this crazy thing in Hawaii that uh, they have these four-lane highways, and it's like a major metropolitan city, but uh, their speed limits are 25 miles per hour. If you go to Hawaii, watch the speed limit. I had no idea. So we were driving. I'm feeling like I'm just keeping up with traffic, four-lane highway, big like, uh, like, I mean, it's massive, right? And I got all of a sudden these lights come on in this unmarked white car. I'm like, what, what was I doing wrong? I pull over and the officer informed me that I was going 45 in a 25. And I was like, I really wanted to fight him on it. I really wanted to find some way to justify the fact I'm a tourist. I didn't know. None of those things help you get out of a uh, a speeding ticket, guys, just so you know. I tried to do the really respectful thing, like, just wasn't going to fly. And so I wound up writing a letter to the judge, right? Because of the way that the highway worked, we came off. We actually didn't pass uh, uh, a sign stating uh, how, like, what the speed limit was. And I was like keeping, I felt like I was really justified. But at the end of the day, friends, the truth of the matter is I was breaking the law and I was speeding. And the only thing that I could resort to was asking the judge for mercy. Please have mercy. I know I deserve the ticket and I didn't argue that fact. I'm just asking for mercy because I was ignorant. <laughs> he didn't grant me mercy. I had to pay the ticket. Anyway, just if you were, if you were wondering on that. But that's, that's how we are with the Lord, right? Friends, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all, uh, none of us with, here this morning are without fault, right? We've all made mistakes. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's punishment. But because of his mercy, right, he sent his son to take our place. So we don't get what we do deserve. Jesus already took it. That's good news, friends. That's a a healthy definition and view of what mercy is. Grace, on the other hand, is receiving a gift that you don't deserve, right? So we receive life in Jesus. That's an amazing gift. So not only do we not get the punishment of God, now we get life with God as an added bonus, that's good news. We, we get to experience the grace of God, which is his benefits, which is his goodness, which he wants to lavish out on his children. That's awesome. But I believe whenever we encounter almost 100% of the time grace of God in Scripture, it, result, it has some kind of connotation with an empowerment from God to live a holy life. The grace of God is the gift of God. The, 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 it's, the, it's the gift of God that is given to us in order to live a holy life in His Holy Spirit. So I read this and I think, 
what, was, what were the Corinthians doing? What was happening that they were receiving the gift of God's grace in vain? And what I strongly would encourage you to do is read the entirety of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But what was transpiring and what was taking place was that they were failing to live differently than the rest of Corinth. They were failing to live differently than the rest of the world. You couldn't tell them apart from what was taking place um, outside, outside in the church and inside the church. Sin was just as rampant as it was outside the church. There was no, there was no manifestation of a changed life. And because of that, Paul uses this heavy language that the grace of God is being taken in vain. You've been empowered to live differently, but you're not. And because you believe this, <laughs> but it's not resulting in any kind of change, it's all for naught. We actually see this here. Um, in verse 14, kind of see the situation. So jumping down to verse 14 in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we, we see the command to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And I've so often heard this strictly applied to relationships and marriages, which I 100% believe that it's applicable to. You know, I've had too many friends in the last number of months, not targeted at anyone uh, specifically, but I've had so many people come across my desk in my office. I know my wife and I have sat down and counseled with people of, I mean, God-fearing people, missionaries, Love the Lord that are in relationships that are stupid. They're like, well, is it maybe God's will? Maybe God has me here just to kind of show the light of Jesus. or ex like, get Friends, I'm telling you, run as fast as you can away from that mentality. Scripture is abundantly clear that we're not to yoke ourselves with unbelievers. In relationship, and marriage, I think a lot of the times we have this idea that we can do some good to bring somebody up with us. But I don't know if you've uh, ever seen this demonstration. Uh, Peyton, come on up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to, Peyton's a strong kid, right? I want you to stand up here. And don't make me look super weak. But it's so much easier to pull somebody down than it is for me to pull somebody up. This dude's way stronger. He's going to pull me down. Thanks for not breaking my arm, right? <laughs> that guy goes out to, like, the gym, like, every other month. Uh, I'm just kidding. He's, he's hardcore. What am I saying is that I want you guys to be released from this idea that it's somehow your responsibility to get so emotionally connected with people to lead them to Jesus. That's not healthy, and that's not right, and that's not God's passion. That's not God's heart. And I would say this, that just don't be foolish. It's, it's very clear, it's abundantly clear in Scripture that we're not supposed to be yoked together 
with unbelievers. And I believe this extends beyond farther than just relationships. I believe this extends farther than just who you're going to date or who you're going to marry. I believe it extends into friendships on who you're going to be emotionally connected to, whose opinion you're going to value in your life in such a way that uh, they have any kind of voice or say into your conduct, into your business relationships. I believe that there has to be something different that marks you and you're not supposed to join together with somebody that's not going in the same direction, in the same pace as you because they will, they will affect your course. They will affect your trajectory, even if it's just a little bit at first. But you know, right, it, it only takes two degree difference in, a, in, in the, it, they said this, I was watching this when they were talking about the, the moon landing the other day that a two-degree difference in the trajectory of the rocket that launched man to the moon would have had him missing by over 15,000 miles the moon by the time you get there, something like that. I might have the numbers wrong, but it was this astronomical number. I do know it was a two-degree difference. And so, right, you may not notice that for the first, like, three weeks of being in a relationship. But you get five years down the line into getting married and having kids, and you realize, my passion for Jesus is gone. It's gone. Why don't I love Jesus like I did when I was in high school? Look at who you're surrounding yourself with. Who has a voice of influence in your life? Friends, that's why it's so important. I think that's why it so aptly gets uh, tied to marriage and relationships here because it's one of the biggest decisions that we make, that you find a spouse, that you have somebody that you can chase after Jesus with, and they prod you and they encourage you to love Jesus more. Find friends that invest and pour into your life that are going to challenge you and push you to love Jesus more. Cut off relationships that are detracting and deterring you from being holy. Friends, that's not cruel. You might say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. He was a friend of sinners. <laughs> Jesus actually never gave that name to himself. That was an insult from the Pharisees. That was something that was attributed to him by somebody that was completely different and unqualified to make a statement on who Jesus actually was. I'm saying that because I don't believe this. I don't believe that you need to just completely remove yourself from society that we need to start an Amish, like, reclusive uh, culture where everything's safe. But I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the important aspects of our life need to be guarded in a place of holiness. I do believe, if you guys have heard me talk for any amount of time, I talk about the importance of being in the world, of being actively engaged in society and in culture, but we live by such a radically different set of pr principles that we change culture by being involved in it. You guys understand that? So I'm not saying that, man, you just lock yourself up in your house and you get rid of all your Christian friends and you just never, you never do anything unless it's church. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I'm talking about our close, intentional friendships that we have. I'm talking about the ones that actually, that we spend time investing in and we let them invest into us because that's the definition of a friendship. It has to be mutually reciprocated. I can't be your friend without you being my friend. I can be a positive influence in your life and just kind of be an acquaintance and try to and hope that something changes. But that's, that's different. Man, I'm getting off on a tangent. Get back to your notes. Um, wow. Um, so we see what we were talking about here was in the Corinthian church, 
we see that there was such a fellowship and this idea of being a part of Corinth and being involved in culture and being, uh, being a Corinthian, <laughs> that they weren't living differently. And I think we diminish what Paul's saying when we let this just kind of strictly apply to relationships or marriages or anything like that. I believe it applies to every aspect and facet of our life, that we're not to be unequally yoked with another believer. We're not to connect ourselves with somebody else and try to kind of spread our passions thin. Our, our goal has to be Jesus. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. And we need to be connected with people that are going the same direction. That's why I'm a big proponent of being involved in the local church, of being connected together as family, because that's what helps us get to where we're going. We're on the same page. We're going in the same vein. And that's why I, I beat it over your guys' head all the time that it's important to stay consistent in the local body because we're going the same direction. But I want to I jump real quick to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have to turn the page to get there, if you're there, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 is actually a continuation of chapter 6. So this, this verse is kind of placed here at the beginning of chapter 1, but it's the completing and concluding thought of everything that Paul's talking about in chapter 6. Because he says, therefore, or because, meaning that he's finishing a thought that he previously had in the other verses, he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the verse that I really wanted to hone in on this morning. This is what I really wanted to talk about, the crux of where we're going, because there's so much in here. Paul is saying, because we have promises from the Lord, we're going to look at those promises in just a moment, that we're to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, really quick, let's look at what those promises are that he's talking about. So now we're going to jump back to chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, we're going to pick up with where we left off um, at the tail end of verse 16. It says, For you are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell in them. That's the first promise I want to talk about. That the, the first promise we have is that we are God's temple and that he will dwell within us. You see, the, the beauty of this promise is that we aren't just human. We're not just these kind of shells of a body that are walking around. We're not, uh, we can't rely on the excuse any longer that we're just human. How many of you guys have ever heard that said? Right? You make a mistake, like somebody, somebody messes up, it's like, oh, I'm just human, I made a mistake, right? Well, guess what? When God calls us to be perfect like he is perfect, and he calls us to be holy like he is holy, and we stand before him, he's going to say, what were you thinking? It's like, God, I'm just human. He's going he's gonna to be insulted by that excuse. Why? Because we have the promise that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells within us, right? That's Romans chapter 8 tells us, gives us that promise that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us. We have the promise here that we are God's temple and that He will dwell in us. That He takes up residence. That He takes up His home in us. 
We don't get to rely on the excuse anymore that we're broken, that we're feeble, that we're just human. Because God, by His grace, has empowered you with the Holy Spirit to live victoriously. That's good news, friend. The grace of God, the beauty of the grace of God is not that, oh, we get out of a hell, we get a, we get a get out of hell free card and that we can get away with whatever we want to get away with now. That is, a, that is a slap in the face to what the grace of God actually is. That's something that we would call cheap grace. The grace of God is that he has empowered you with the Holy Ghost that you can live victorious over sin. And that is good news. The good news is that you are not just Glenn Rayburn anymore. You don't have to face your addiction anymore just because you're Glenn Rayburn. The good news is now that you're Glenn Rayburn Rayburn, filled with the Holy Ghost and with power, and now you can conquer your sin. I said that. Glenn's not addicted to... I'm just using that as an example, everybody. (laughs) Right? That's good news, right? Man, you guys are like dead. Somebody tell me that that's good news. Gosh. That's exciting for me, friends, because I don't have to sit back and say, you know what? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm not. I'm a victorious child of the living God that has been bought by the blood of the Lamb, and I'm full of the Holy Ghost, so I don't have to struggle with the things that I struggled with before. I don't have to live bound. I don't have to live addicted. I don't have to say, you know what, just because I'm a young teenage male that I'm going to struggle with pornography for the rest of my days. I get to live victorious by the grace of God, filled with His Holy Spirit, and that's good news, friends. The promise is that He would dwell within us. That's the first promise that we encounter. The second promise that we encounter here is that he would walk among us. That he would be our God and we should be his people. We have that promise here that Paul's reflecting on. What I really felt like I received from the Holy Spirit in regard to this truth here. This promise that he would walk among us. That he would be our God and we would be his people. Is that God doesn't have to resign himself just to a place of good thought. I think a lot of the times we struggle conceptually with loving Jesus and loving God because we only kind of put him on a shelf of a good idea. And he comes up like he's the equivalent to an imaginary friend. Right? We don't treat him as something that's real. We don't treat him as someone that's real, someone that's tangible. And what I felt promised from the Lord as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we, as we perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, that the promise that we would experience that he would walk among us would be that he would become real to us. We wouldn't have to wonder about his nearness. We wouldn't have to wonder where he is, but that he would be our God, and we would walk in close fellowship with him, that there'd be a tangible aspect about knowing that he's near. I have a friend back in Pueblo, and I thought he was crazy at first, but man, this guy loves Jesus. I want to love Jesus like he does. And I mean, he's a little bit of a goofball. He's a little bit weird, but I would much rather be weird and in love with Jesus than be normal and on my way to hell. And this guy, he would, he would open doors when nobody was there. Like, he would go and open his car door, and he would shut it, 
And then he'd go get in his car, and I mean, like, just weird stuff. Like, he was opening doors for an imaginary friend. I mean, just weird, right? I mean, this guy's like 22 at the time. I, don't, I mean, he's in college. I mean, completely normal. He's got a good job. Like, I'm just like, God, what is weird? He's like, you know, I started doing this about a year ago because it helped me remember that Jesus is a real person, not just some kind of imaginary friend. So I opened doors for Jesus. I talk to Jesus like he's sitting in my car. And some people think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you he's met with me in real ways. He's met with me in really personal ways. And friends, I would, I'm not saying you have to do that. <laughs> I don't do that personally. But man, it stirred my heart to have such faith to believe that God doesn't have to just be resorted to how I feel or to an emotion. You know, the Old Testament, we, we see promises of God incarnate leading entire nations by clouds of smoke and pillars of fire. How cool is that? I believe that God doesn't just have to be a warm, fuzzy feeling that you have. I believe that, that's a dis- I believe that diminishes what his role and his purpose and his passion um, for your life looks like. And the last promise that we encounter here, there's actually more, but just the one I'm going to hit on, that he will be a father to you. and You shall be my sons and daughters. There's a promise of restored relationship with God as our Father. For me, I didn't have a a very healthy father figure growing up. I know that today that has only gotten worse. I made this statement, my wife's a first grade teacher. And out of almost 30 kids in our class, or no, I guess it was 20 last year, sorry. Um, but even if you, if we were to compile all the years that she's been a teacher, all the kids, that the results would be crazy. I haven't even thought about it. But I know last year, in the entirety of her class, she had one family, one family out of all of her students that had both, fa- both parents in the home. What? Like, that's not some statistic I pulled off of CNN. That's my wife. That's Pagosa Springs. That's not, that's not New York City. That's not Las Vegas. That was here in our home, in our city. The same city that we want to see Jesus move in. Where we want to see, see families changed. So as much as there's a fatherless epidemic in our culture and in our society, we have this beautiful promise that God wants to be a father to us, be fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 7.1, therefore, having these promises, the promises we just looked at, just very briefly, very quickly, goes on to say, beloved. Those loved by God. I believe I can't overemphasize this enough, and this isn't in my notes, but I want you to know that in the midst of all of this, God loves you. He's rooting for you. He wants you to succeed. And his love isn't hindered just because we've messed up. His love isn't hindered just because we've made mistakes. He loves you tremendously. But he goes on to say something very interesting here, and I think this is where most of us get hung up. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Paul is very intentional here 
about using the terminology, using the phrase here, cleanse ourselves. You'd say, whoa, hold up. No, wait, Jesus, you're supposed to fix me. I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't have a say in this. I don't have any responsibility in this. I don't have to do this. Jesus has made me clean. I don't, I'm not saying that in like a light manner. All of that is true. But then why would Paul use a phrase like this, let us cleanse ourselves? If only to reiterate the fact that we do have some skin in the game. We have some responsibility when it comes to our personal holiness. And this is where I, I feel like we have a, an inferior understanding of what the grace of God actually is. Yes, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But the grace of God is the empowerment for us to live differently. The grace of God is the empowerment for us to live holy. Remember, we started this morning, I said that God will never ask you to do something that you can't do with his help. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we, in and of ourselves, can never live holy. We can't make the right decisions. We can't do good by Jesus. It is only through him that we have the ability to live holy and live righteous. It's only with us resting fully in his grace that we have the ability to cleanse ourselves. And I'm not, I'm not here saying that, you know what, you just have to try really hard and you're going to figure it out. I'm not here this morning to preach a message of works, but I am here to reiterate the fact that there is some responsibility for you to own up to your life. We like to live in this mentality that God's just going to zap us with some kind of ray and just make all of our struggles go away and just give us self-control all of a sudden. There has to be some intentionality on our part. I believe God is abundantly gracious with helping us and giving us motivation. I don't even believe that we could come to him and say, Lord, we want to change outside of his motivation. I'm not, I'm not preaching somehow that we earn this from God. Hear me. But there has to be a level of responsibility that we own up to when it comes to our walk with the Lord. Otherwise, you know, there are going to be plenty of people that say, Jesus, you know what? I said a prayer one time. And, uh, you know, I could just casually lay back and say, you know what? God, I asked you to take this away from me and you didn't do it. You didn't fix me that one time. And you know what? That's on you now. I'm free. And that's, that's stupid. Nobody's going to agree with me on that, but that's stupid to think like that. When we read in the light of the entirety of Scripture, we, we don't see that kind of mentality. We see the constant urging from Jesus, from the apostles, all the way even in the Old Testament, that you live holy. That you would watch your life and conduct closely. That you take responsibility for your actions. <laughs> I wish I could say it was super easy. It's not. It's hard. But God is so willing and wants to give more of his spirit. Wants to give more grace. Oh, we're, I don't have time to get into that. But there is some responsibility here. Paul, Paul doesn't just kind of haphazardly say, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. 
right? Because we understand we're powerless to do that in and of ourselves. But he's talking about all of this in light of the grace of God and not taking it in vain. So because of the grace of God, our lives have to look different. Does that make sense? Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. That word perfecting, right? We talked about it just a little bit ago back in Matthew. It says, be ye perfect like I am perfect. Or be ye perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect is actually the one we referenced. It's the same word that's used here again when we're talking about perfection. And it's the word epithelontes. I I don't speak Greek, guys. But uh, that's my stab at it. But it means to bring to an end, to finish to complete. The idea of here is it's of something carrying, uh, carrying something full term to completion. So when, when Jesus is saying being perfect, he's saying being perfect, being full and complete. When we're encountering it here, perfecting holiness. Bring holiness to fruition. Bring it to an end. Bring it to a completion. In the fear of the Lord. It's something that you grow in. And you may not be, you're not right now. You're not at 100%. But it's something that you're supposed to be continually growing in. And it's perfected. It's completed in the fear of the Lord. one of my favorite promises of scripture that we've kind of been hung up for on on a while, but that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. And I want you to know this right now. You may be saying, Pastor Nate, and everything you said is good. It's spot on, but I'm so far from the mark. Hey, sign me up. I'm there too. I want you to know I'm nowhere near where I want to be with the Lord. But I'm setting perfection as my goal, right? I'm setting perfection as the standard. And I'm going to live my life in such a way that holiness is the goal. And I'm going to give everything I have, everything Nate Ward can possibly give, I'm throwing in the ring to get there. Am I probably going to miss it? Yeah. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life in such a way with an intentionality and purpose behind it that I can say I gave it everything I've got. And my challenge would be for you to do the same. It's not a place of trying to elevate oneself in, a, in an area or arena of pride that somehow you earn your salvation. But there's an expectancy for you to be involved in this. And God's grace is what carries us over the finish line. God's grace is what actually even motivates us to get there in the first place. And that's good news. But friends, I'm, I'm here. This, if, there, if, you hear, if you don't hear anything else I'm saying here, there's one, get in the game. Wake up. Like this is real life. Take some responsibility for your life, for your actions, for whether you are where you want to be with the Lord or where you're not. Because he'll help you get to where you need to be. Right? God will always provide a way (laughs) for you to fulfill his will and purpose. 
If you feel like there's no provision for you to do what you're doing right now, it's probably because you're not trying to fulfill the purpose and will of God in your life. He is always willing to provide for those that are pursuing his will. And if your will is to please him, he's going to give grace to see that happen. Debbie, I'm going to ask that if you'd cue up some just altar music, something soft. What I'm going to do is I'm going to invite us to stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to dismiss this morning. I want you guys to know that you're loved by God. This isn't meant to just be some harsh rebuke this morning. This is, this is coming from a place where I felt so inferior and inadequate as a minister, as a husband, as a friend this week, just thinking, God, am I, I'm so far from the mark, so far from where I want to be, so far from who you've called me to be, and I don't want to be like this. I want to be like you. This is where that motivation comes from, and I want that to be our motivation as a church, to be like Jesus. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would come. Lord, I preached what you asked me to preach. I'm asking that you'd move upon hearts. Lord, I understand without your Holy Spirit, everything I just said was condemnation. But Lord, with your Spirit, it can bring forth life. So Lord, I'm asking that you would breathe upon your word, that we would be stirred to action, stirred to response. Because we want to be holy like you are holy. We want to bring you glory. We want you to be exalted. So, Father, I pray for this church. I pray for my friends and my family here. Lord, I'm asking that, Holy Spirit, that you would compel us to live righteously, to embrace the work of the cross, Lord, to not take the grace of God in vain, but to establish you as rightful king over our lives, Lord, that this community could be changed. That you could establish holiness as a standard here. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.